1: At our firm, we are readers and book junkies. It can be said that leaders are readers, and we believe books provide us a great source of information for filtering what is and isn't important for us as investors. Investing is the last great liberal art and the best way to spend a lifetime of learning. This podcast is for readers, thinkers, business-minded people, and investors who want to grow their knowledge from great authors and their writing. Charlie Munger often talks about using multiple mental models and analysis. Our aim for this podcast is to help listeners test Munger's theory in business markets, and people. Today's date is July 3rd, 2023. Uh, Investors and people we run into often ask us, you know, what books are we reading? What's on our book list? Um, This is our quarterly episode for us to talk about books, books, and as we always say, more books. Um, Joining me to talk about our reading list and our book list is our chairman and chief investment officer, Bill Smead. Dad, thanks for joining me. Glad to be here. Um, Let's see, so we're going to start like we usually do. Let's kind of knock out what we've recently read and kind of talk about, you know, takeaways from books. So um, do you want to kick us off?
0: Yeah, I I had the wonderful uh, accidental book sent to me by the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center, a book called Living Medicine by Dr. Fred Applebaum. And it started out with scenes from Hiroshima and Nagasaki where the first atom bombs were dropped, mm-hmm. and began to explain uh, how radiation affected people, depending on how close they were to the center of the explosion, and that was the beginnings of science associated with uh, uh, bone marrow transplants mm-hmm. and cell therapy and the creation of the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center through the life of a doctor by the name of Don Thomas and numerous doctors in this book that won the Nobel Prize for Medicine.
1: Next on your list?
0: Uh, Well, we read The Richest Man Ever Lived by... uh, by Greg Steinmetz, which we
1: both read and, and we'll have a podcast coming out here in July with Greg.
0: Just just lo- loved it. Just uh, a an incredible multidisciplinary look at politics, religion and the invention of merchant banking and investment banking and private equity investments in the 1500s.
1: Yeah, and what I I think was most interesting in the book is how all, you know, we live in this multi-factor world. Um, You know, I I think everyone in the investing world kind of wants to bake it down to, you know, here's the two things you got to do, or here's the five things you got to do. And what Fugers' book does really well is explains, well, you have to correctly finance a business and make good decisions in the business. You have to deal with politics. You have to deal with religious zealots from time to time as well. Um, uh, you deal with geographical differences. For example, he came from Germany. Um, what were Germany's benefits and what were their problems that went with it too? Um, so I say that because all those factors together is what drives the investment process because ultimately the future's unknown. And, um, I, what I like about, you know, Greg pointed this out, um, you know, uh, in his book is that, you know, very few people know who Fugger was outside of Germany um, so I think it's really interesting that he had to deal with all these different entanglements um, all the way out to, as an example, uh, it, it, you know, he talked about his interactions with Martin Luther in the book.
0: Yeah, it it, it baffled me for for a number of years. I, w- I was a uh, as a young man and junior high school and high school, I was fascinated by World War One and World War II. Mm-hmm. And in all the books I read about World War One, they all explain that the war started when a guy named Ferdinand in Yugoslavia was assassinated. I thought, what has that got to do with Germany and England and France and these people separating their armies with two miles of barbed wire and slaughtering each other for for years? And uh, ironically, uh, Greg's book on Fugger explained how these Royal monarchies and religious uh, powerhouse people interacted with each other, and how intertwined all that was in
1: broader Europe. Yeah, well, and to your point, I mean, like I've been to Vienna before, which was the seat of really that the Habsburg dynasty. Um, and he, you know, does a great job of explaining how the Habsburgs went from being really a two-bit player. Uh, I'll call it a ducal kingdom, um, not a true. You know kingship, if you will, uh, at one point to within really Maximilian's generation becoming the dominant intramarried you know monarchy to your point. And um, you know I, I think uh, you know, if you think about Maximilian, he goes from being in like a like a Dutch jail, if I remember correctly, to the dominant force in Europe. And it you know he marries uh, he marries his uh, uh, his son off to the king of Spain. And it's also funny to think about someone marrying into your family and you're rooting against them.
0: <laughs> and, and Billy Joel saying about all this by telling us that Vienna waits for us.
1: Yeah, so um, so I agree with you. It's a, it's a very multi- multidisciplinary and uh, kind of uh, way of thinking. And um, obviously we did Greg's prior, you know, his, his, his uh, newer book, uh, American Rascal, in our first season of the podcast, which he's just a great author. And so I think um, we'll have to go to his publisher and just pray for another book uh, sooner rather than <laughs> later. Um, what, what else have you recently read?
0: Uh, well, we read "Easy Money" by Dora Goldberg, which was just a part of U.S. history that I never even considered, never even thought about. And uh, brill-
1: so, what, what, what do you mean by that? In other words, like unpack that.
0: Well. Uh, you, you know, when you grow up in, in my lifetime, I was born in 1958. I mean, you've always handled, handled paper dollars and there hasn't been any question whether people are going to accept that from you. And, and you never took a moment to think about why. And all the whys are answered in, in easy money. Uh, it, it, it it it's because you can pay your taxes with that money and and that 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 took all the other currencies whether it be agricultural things that people traded with or uh, ownership of slaves that people traded with or whatever they had used otherwise to to pay back uh, money they owed to other people uh, it it the, the paper currency system, uh, has pretty much worked in almost around the world now, ever since it was heavily adopted.
1: Well yeah, and, and to your point, I mean, ultimately it was a barter system prior. You know, if you didn't have coins, you bartered. You bartered your you know goods that you sold. And so the tobacco cropper in Virginia would pay the government in lieu of cash with tobacco, and it would be held at a storehouse. And I think George does a good job of that. I also, to your point, I mean, I walked away thinking why did we not have a revolution in like 1676? Why was it a hundred years later? Because it seems like the Puritans, though, um, you know, Bible believing people despised the king for, uh, you know, a few generations prior to us, you know, uh, doing what we did in the Revolutionary War. The other... They took
0: the risk. They, They took the risk to going to this new land. Correct. And put up with... Uh, really, very little support from the government associated with that. It's not like they sent uh, British troops over to protect them against the risks they were being faced with, and and, and then but they wanted to impose, you know, the uh, economic control over them without really giving them any benefit of it.
1: Well, yeah, and th- th- I mean, no one's ever said we use dollar bills today because we didn't have a mint. <laughs> which is true i mean that's why we have dollar bills um obviously the bill was the legal context to say you know you'll be you'll be do something at a later date and um that's what the puritans effectively created was a bill system Um, but it was considered legal tender you could pay your taxes into bill's point just a second ago and so i i never thought that it was a creative alternative to not having the ability to coin and obviously you think forward now you go to the UK, do big bills, are they coins? And the answer is no. Because well, well, it was an inferior system from the beginning.
0: During all this crypto mania of the last six, seven years, we've been asked a lot about, you know, what, what do we think about crypto? And, and what, I, what I say is the only potential positive outcome of crypto would be if it would become an alternative currency. Uh, and and the reason I say that is a paper dollar uh, ha- has been eaten away uh, by inflation in the last 225 years. A, a paper dollar is worth about a penny and a half, whereas a dollar's worth of gold is worth about a dollar fifty, mm-hmm. inflation adjusted. Yeah. So 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 uh, uh, paper currency does have its its flaws and. If it becomes a currency, but that's not an investment. Uh, The same one dollar worth of good quality common stocks in those two hundred twenty-five years would be, you know, uh, just an incredible amount of money uh, versus the penny and a half that the paper dollar is worth. So, so the the truth of it is, trying to mix. A system really set up to try to turn something into a currency, into an investment, was it literally a
1: train wreck waiting to happen? Yeah, but George's book doesn't really talk about you know the inflation effects or anything like that. That's not really his focus. No, his, his, his focus is purely like you know why did we get out to this? Yeah. and I, I think his core thesis, which is really simple thesis, is if you can't pay, you know, for your taxes, in that it will not be accepted as the currency, which is. Interesting because these, you know, alternative currency people, these crypto people, they think they're on something new. And what he's pointing out is if the government doesn't accept it, it will and not be legal tender. In
0: 1636, at the height of the tulip mania, you could trade a fine bulb for a house, a carriage, and two fine horses. And that's about what crypto did. Yeah. And, it, and of course— but it's
1: still not a currency. It's just a speculative asset. It,
0: it's just a tulip bulb. That's, yeah. It, it's a beanie baby.
1: Well, yeah. And by the way, I, you know— I. As I usually tell younger people, if I'm going to gamble, I'd much rather play behind the pass line on the craps table than go play with crypto, because at least they'll give you a free drink. Um, what else have you been reading? That is
0: quite a thought, Cole. Uh, we're, we're, we're reading The Purpose Driven Life uh, uh, in, in our work. And I, I read it a number of years ago, and it's just a really good idea to reassess your 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 own uh, existence, your own uh, relationship with God, uh, through the lens of you know what is your purpose. Uh, I I think one of the biggest challenges of this era in the United States is I I read about people living lives, and what I think about is when I was a kid, uh, there were two kinds of people, uh, basically in the United States. There were people that were religious, and had a biblical foundation to what they were doing. And then there were people like my father who lived his life knowing he kind of owed something to the prior generations to give forward, pay it forward to future generations. But that would
1: be like a legacy.
0: Uh, exactly. So you you either had a religious fundamental to what you were doing, or you were trying to build a legacy. You were, you were writing a... a, a uh, you're writing your epitaph. You, you're writing your epitaph in the process of living your life. Well, now we have lots of people in our country and other countries that aren't are working aren't working off the purposes of the Bible, but then they're not concerned at all with being grateful to the people that came before them by repeating the process. And I, I find that uh, it, it's spooky, I'd yeah. say.
1: Well, so, yeah, because first the first uh, chapter of the book, his main thesis is, it's not about you. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Which, I mean, let's call a spade a spade. If I died tomorrow, uh, within five years, society will be fine. Within probably three weeks, society will be fine. Within a day, society will be fine. The idea that we're so important to, you know, the, the human race is just, it's sad and disgusting to think that we're that big of a deal. Um, And and you think about like, you know, we're active on social media with the podcast and whatnot, but you think about people sharing their opinions out on social media, and again, it's not about you. (laughs) No one actually cares if you died, it wouldn't matter. Um, So the question is, well, who would care? Um, Those are probably far better things to be involved in. Um, And by the way, to your point earlier, if your creator cares who you are, that's probably a better relationship to seek out and, um, and to your point, it's very countercultural. I mean, that is just crazy to say that, you know, it's not about you. You don't really matter. Um, yeah. No one, you know, you grew up as a kid and you're like, oh, you're special. You know, your parents love you. You're important to us. Well, that's, you're important to the people that are close to you. Yeah. But does society really care? Yeah.
0: As a 65 year old man who has far less of his life left to live, yeah. Uh, it, it it just blows your mind how fast time goes by mm-hmm. in your life, it, it, and and it accelerates. and And my theory is that, you know, your your eightieth year is one eightieth of your life, and your fifth year was one fifth, and so a fifth takes a lot longer to happen than an eightieth. And, and it's it's a relative thing, and because of that. It it just helps you frame how temporal so many things that people think are important are compared to what actually is important. Yeah, like a good legacy if it doesn't have to do religion, like a uh, a, a a a job well done if it's if if it's God you're trying to please.
1: Yeah, agree. Um, let's see. So some books I just got done reading. Um, I just got done reading Volt Rush by uh, Henry Sanderson, which we. We're, we we, uh, we just recorded a podcast that will be coming out with H- Henry. Henry uh, came from like a commodities reporter background um, with the FT. And what he did a lot of his work on was understanding the physical shortcomings of mining. You know, you have to actually go to these places far flung to get things like cobalt and lithium, etc. And then also the human implications. Um, these are, in many cases, third world countries. These are places that... You know, we sit here in the West and think, oh, gosh, you know, we get to pick our energy policy and aren't we great, awesome, cool people. But in these countries, just to have like, you know, uh, power readily available to power your home with electricity and things of that nature, you know, readily available resources to run your life, your business, etc. Those are those are normal goods. Those are preferred goods, but that's not what they get there. And so I think um, he does a really good job of explaining as we go into this quote unquote transition that everyone is fervently believing in. There are natural human implications that are just falling far short of what people think. Um, and then also because of that, there's human rights implications to what a lot of we think. Um, and theref- therefore, can we do this at scale like we think we're going to? You know, Can we get to the Paris Accords like we think we're going to? Um, I, and he does a lot of the human story of that and I, it's a very fun read uh, that was recommended by one of our, our listeners. Um, uh, let's see the other book kind of on it's not far off drawer, but uh, it, it comes at a different angle. It's called Cloud Money by Brett Scott. Um, Brett is I'll call it he's just kind of a general currency uh, interested person. He's a former derivatives trader in London. Um, you know, he, as he would say himself and, and, and we recorded a podcast with him too. He, he said he's got some Marxist tendencies and, you know, as, as many of you probably listen to the podcast, you know, Bill and I fall into your like classic evangelical right wing Christian crowd. Um, and it was funny cause here we are the right leaning, here he is left leaning and there's certain things we agree on, you know, things we agree on is, um, he's just advocating that we can't go to a all digital payments world. Why? Uh, because, you know, he pointed out he went to a festival, um, they said they're only going to take uh, digital payments, you know, Apple Pay and things of those nature. Uh, what happens? Well, there's no cell phone service. So you're at a festival, you want to get a beer and you can't. <laughs> so he talked about some of the physical uh, shortcomings of this age we want to move into. Um, uh, and, and I find that interesting because ultimately, you know, as kind of he has this Marxist tendencies he doesn't look at it to be a good thing to have it all end up on a server database counting all of our money. He thinks there's security issues with that too. Embedded chip, maybe in our shoulder. Um, so I, I just say that because that you know he comes he comes at what Drawer talked about. Drawer was giving the historical implications. Brett is asking very practical societal implications. Um, it, you know, is cash that bad? Um, and so, very interesting way to go when you go from Drawer out to his book. You're, you're coming at two different mental models. Then I think it's interesting that, again, like I said, a Marxist and a right wing conservative have certain things they find common ground on. Um, and also he pointed out that there's a lot of crypto folks out there that obviously I think are scheming people, but that that find his work interesting as well. Um, let's see. The other book that I just read and we, we've also have a podcast uh, coming out on is The War That Made the Roman Empire by Barry Strauss. Barry is um, he's a professor at Ithaca in, in Ithaca at Cornell um, university, he is one of the foremost Greek and Roman historians. Um, he was a blessing to visit with. I, I My bias is I did a lot of my uh, history major in ancient Greek history and Alexander the Great and, and the Hellenistic kingdoms. And um, so I was interested from, you know, kind of like indulging my own history sense. And the, the book is built on the Battle of Actium, where Octavian, Cleopatra, and Mark Antony meet. And it really sets the stage of the future leadership of the Roman Empire when you think of Caesars, I think of like gluttony and, you know, overindulgence and orgies and, you know, kind of Nero-esque things. And Octavian, what we now know as as Augustus Caesar, um, was actually far more of a tactician, was was studying his, his, his enemies a lot better than people think. And a very fun read if, if you do enjoy history. It kind of fits into a classics world that... You know, most people don't go back that far, but um, you know, that's timeless history and uh was a lot of fun. So I it, that'll be a great podcast for people to listen to. Um let's pivot to what we're currently reading.
0: I could use a few recommendations. I'm I'm a little light in the book list. So if you have something you want us to read, uh i sure appreciate that being sent to us.
1: Yeah, and one and in fairness to Bill, we we just did get a lot of reading done. Um, the the uh, As I was reading those books, I'm actually, to your point, I'm actually kind of in between right now. Um, I did a drive in uh, late May uh, from Phoenix, Arizona, up to Lake Tahoe. And my son was going to sit in the back and be on headphones. So I thought, well, how how can I get some learning done? And so I ended up audio booking, which just so everyone knows on the podcast, Bill and I don't audio book. I'm not a fan of audio books. But when you're stuck in a car for hours of driving... Why not learn something and listen to music? And so I, I bought The Smartest Guys in the Room by Bethany McNeil and Peter Elkin, um, which is the story of Enron. And it's funny to think about the story removed now.
0: I've read that book.
1: Yeah, it's, it's you know, we're removed now to think about what uh, practically went on. And, to, you know, we always talk about Charlie Munger as we open up the, the podcast episode and um, the incentive structures and, and and we have a you know we have a family friend, a longtime friend of my father's, who was uh, an Accenture partner turned Accenture you know shareholder, but was at Arthur Anderson Consulting. And one of the things that they make the case at, Ander, at, at Arthur Anderson was that the traditional audit side and the traditional tax, the accounting side of the house um, created a lot of the relationships of the consulting side, but the consulting side, as we know from Accenture being a public company today was so much more vastly profitable and what ended up happening was um they wanted to split the two businesses into you know two separate pieces and the audit partners came in and said no we we don't want to do this because they knew it was a cash cow for any existing partner and a judge ruled that that they had to split the businesses in two which eventually begat what we know as Accenture today well he pointed out that once that was lost, a lot of the profitability of Anderson uh, Arthur Anderson disappeared with that too. And so think of you made a lot of money in a business, you have that profitability to disappear. It can create perverse incentive structures because you want to get that profitability back. So as an example, you lose that. What's your incentive to be as scrutinous or not try to find just a lot more work? And that was one of the dangerous things that cropped out of the book that I really have learned so far.
0: Well, I I remember that situation so well. Uh, You'll be shocked to hear that uh, in in 2000, 2001, a mania developed uh, among the whole idea of energy trading, right? These utility companies, stodgy utility companies were putting capital towards Having a large, uh, effectively commodity trading unit.
1: Yeah, like a prop trading desk.
0: Yeah, yeah. And, and and it got widespread, and it got to be a mania, and and, and what happened was it. It literally ended up destroying the balance sheet of numerous highly thought of uh, electric utility companies, yeah. and putting the whole system in disarray, and exacerbated the economic problems that came with the crushing of the dot-com bubble. So, so uh, that's a real good warning for today, uh, where we're ending this. That we we've abruptly ended the era of free money and all of the stupidity that has happened in a a wide variety of of asset classes because of free money and and now they're bringing in this ai excitement as a way to try to perpetuate a
1: mania that needs somewhere to die so let's um let's jump across to books you've had recommended or things that are kind of on your reading list going forward here
0: well uh i've got the price of time uh it 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 looks so thick i'm (laughs) a little
1: intimidated
0: i i I don't think i can date this book I i might have to marry it i we so much admire ed chancellor he did some research when he was at grantham mayo in in 2012 that 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 made us a lot of money his research showed that as of 2012 homes in china were the most expensive they'd ever been and in the United States, they were about as cheap as they were, as they had ever been in 2012. As an outcropping of the disaster created by overbuilding in 03, 04, 05, torching the financial system in the United States with, with, with bad mortgages and financial institutions with uh, bad debts, uh, it, it, the outcropping of that was. Uh, this spread. So from a hedge fund standpoint, you wanted to be short Chinese condos and you wanted to be long uh, residences in the United States. So we got involved in owning residences.
1: Yeah. So for Chancellor, because I I, I think you've also read Devil Takes the Hindmost by Chancellor too, haven't you? His prior book? I don't know if I have. I think you have. I, I know I have. Um, and he does a great job of kind of giving the history of euphorias at at parts of that book and very good storytelling, uh, from some original sources out of that, um, like Japan, for example. Um, and the other thing on, on the price of time, from what I know of the book, even though I haven't dove into it yet, either like we're big information theory folks. Um, if someone says, um, what is the value of your time? The value of your time is the amount of money someone will pay to save theirs. Okay. And hence, you know, Bill's time's worth more than mine. Okay. So therefore, you know, he will pay me a certain amount of time. Or if you think about this from a Smeed capital management pr- perspective, why do people pay us a fee? Because we save them time in picking stocks for them in lieu of them doing it themselves, plus or minus the risks and the the, the potential they're having success. That's our value, right? You know, we 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 provide that value, it's the time saved. And so time is a critical element in money. And hence, any time you can go into a discussion of thinking about you know, the prices of things and the time involved, it, you're always gonna have a fun exercise. Um, Doesn't Gilder say something about that? Well, yeah, he, 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 says, um, he says money is time. In other words, it's the only way, money is the only way to account for our time. It also exposes why when time is short at the end of life, we waste so much money on medicine or medical procedures because time is short, it's worth a lot then. Um, and so there's a very good practical implication. So that that will be a fun read. Um, let's see some other books that I'm looking forward to. Um, I am a Hemingway fan. I have visited Hemingway's house in Key West before, and I'm just kind of like whenever I want to clear my mind a little bit. And yeah, as, as we point out, we don't have much on our book list a- as we speak that we're reading. Um, I want to read "The Sun Also Rises" by Ernest Hemingway. I've I've read "For Whom the Bell Tolls," which is a story about the Spanish Civil War. Um, I've also read "To Have or Have Not." which is, um, a guy running people back and forth between Cuba and Key West. Um, uh, and the story of kind of like the incompleteness of life, I would argue. Um, so that's kind of my, my space, my mind clearing book, uh, and kind of my fun book. Um, a couple other reads, uh, I got, I got out there is cage Kings by Michael Thompson tells the story of how did UFC get to where it was? It was like a backwater sport. It was a nothingness. It had no media popularity, um, why would someone, you know, go to Japan to fight a fight where it's like a blood sport and it's kind of socially unacceptable? Now, every weekend, practically, you can watch a UFC fight on ESPN Plus. How did we go from one point to the other? So I'm interested to read that. Um, the other book that I, I I have out there on my list to read this is this book. It's either I think it's about to come out, um, "Gallop Toward the Sun" by Peter Stark. We had done Astoria with Peter Stark, which is a very fun read. One of our first podcast episodes. Um, uh, it, it, it's, it's looking at, you know, kind of the manifest destiny and, you know, really the struggle between the federal government and the tribal nations. And I'm very interested to read that book, um, and get into that. And then the other book that I've been recommended and and have on my list is Taming, uh, the street by Diana, uh, Henriquez. And it's really about FDR's regulation of wall street and investment markets coming out of. You know uh, the the you know what going into the Great Depression, and so that'll be a fun book to read of in light of as we look at the regional lending problem. You know bank capital rules are those going to increase? Is Elizabeth Is Elizabeth Warren going to get her say in everything tied to regulation? Um, and so it'll be kind of a fun way to look back at history, and uh, ask those questions. Um, so we did this last time, and I want to do this again. Um, we, I want to ask a question in our book list that we're commonly getting. Um, we had debated what we were going to use for this question. We'd actually thought about, should we talk about oil? Um, uh, but I think the question, it's a, it's a bigger framework question. So I'll ask it to you, Bill, and then we can discuss it. But so inflation is coming down from where it was, say a year ago. Why do you, or why do the investors of Smead Capital Management think inflation will stay sticky versus go back to its 2% level?
0: Uh, terrific question. Uh, you have to go back to the way things played out in the 1970s. Somebody that we, some great research we got lately, there's been two commodity super cycles, uh, one starting in 1971 uh, in the US uh, centered, uh, one in 1999 that was centered around the Chinese economic. Miracle, basically, this this formerly totalitarian ca- communist country suddenly starts a, a GDP growth juggernaut. Uh, too many people with with too much money chasing too few goods, and so in the in the 1971, it was too much Vietnam War, uh, borrowed money, and Johnson's Great Society uh, legislation borrowed money that got monetized in the hands of too many baby boomers chasing too few goods as soon as the Arab oil embargo hit. It inflamed it. So what would happen is the Fed would tighten credit. We'd get thrown into a recession. Inflation would back off and they'd think, "Okay, we got this thing licked. Then as soon as the economy strengthened again, the inflation would take off again. And then they did wage and price controls in 1973 in the Nixon administration. As soon as they took those off. Probably a
1: Republican administration. And
0: and, and then the, 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 uh, the inflation took off again as soon as they took that off. And we Went through a rolling 10 year process of attempting with monetary policy uh, uh, to, to offset a set of circumstances that you can't do much about. You couldn't do much about the fact that there was 75% more baby boomers than there was the age group before them, which meant 75% more household formation, 75% more kids being born, et cetera, et cetera. Those are all very powerful forces in, in China to unleash over a billion people in, into, uh, it was, it was kind of, uh, uh, totalitarian communist government controlling the politics but it was c- uh, capitalism in in, in in they unleashed capitalism too many people with too much money chasing too few goods this time we got too many millennials with too much money chasing too few goods in in, in our opinion what Jerome Powell is doing is is equivalent to a brain surgeon treating your cancer because the cancer is the nine trillion dollars worth of monetized debt that two presidential administrations did to get us through covid now you got 40 percent more millennials who have been very slow to get started with their household formation who are now forming households like crazy and and, and here we are too many people too much money too few goods
1: Yeah, because I think about it. There's other things I think about. So, for example, um, we did Amity Schley's book, Uh, Great Society, and she does a great job of talking about Arthur Burns, who was like the famed economist of that era. He was the smartest mind in economic thinking. And the reality is, for monetary policy, he was a fool. I mean, he, he didn't really do anything. Um, Burns and Nixon were more worried about the flight of gold outside of the U.S. Treasury than they really were about any price issues or inflationary issues um, and Burns was more interested in how much time he got with the president um, than he was about monetary policy now I'm not saying that that's the issue that Jay Powell's dealing with but it shows you that pragmatically this is not a virtuous process it's 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 human it's, it's weird um, it's complicated and there's no question in my mind where I, whether I think Jay Powell is attempting to fix a problem. To your point, he wants to ago. be Paul Volcker. Can, can, he, can he solve a problem that's not created by him? That's a question. But also, the former Federal Reserve chair, Janet Yellen, who usually when you leave the chair position, you're an esteemed person and Go notable. And, sunset. And and, and Yeah. Um, she didn't go into the sunset. She went into politics, and, and she's now part of a Democratic administration and sat there vociferously arguing, transitory, there will be no inflation, it's no big deal, et cetera. And the problem is, does that invade the minds of the consensus-building academics that sit around the Federal Reserve in many cases? And the answer is, unquestionably, just like Burns being more interested in Nixon's time than he was in monetary policy. So,
0: And while the Fed has tightened credit— the administration has added another trillion dollars in stimulus. Yeah. So between the baby boomers being such a large population group driving things like housing, simultaneous to that, uh, every Tom, Dick, and Harry that's got a great idea for some environmental, uh, you know, uh, cl- climate change improving technology is being funded. Uh, whether it's economic for five or 10 years or not. So some of the benefits of free money are still out there in the form of government subsidies.
1: Well, yeah, there's, I mean, there's roughly about a trillion dollars still out there in just cash from the prior subsidies. Floating around. Um, but let me add one more thing, cause that's kind of the political lens. So we've talked a lot about when the psychology changes. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, you know, pandemic breaks out and then we kind of come out of like our houses and travel takes off immediately because oh, we got we, had, we had anything to do anything. And then it's like TVs take off in the fall as people go out to buy the discretionary goods with, you know, the money they had left. And then we just begin to go one category to another to another where the prices go off. We're now in the second redux of travel being a hot item and being way overpaid for and things of that nature. And it's like a game of whack a It's like rotational price changes.
0: Well, then labor, you, you, you have to add and in labor. There, there is a, an extreme shortage of unskilled labor in the United States. And so businesses like restaurants- Or low-skilled, and, way. yeah, or, low, or, or, unskilled or, or low-skilled. Or, yeah, low-skilled. Or in other words, the kind of people you hire and you have to train them once you get them. Correct. Uh, it, it, there is, I drive by these businesses and the price
1: they're offering at the entry level goes up about 10% every night. Months. I agree. So, so, and what Bill's referring to is, if you look at the lower two quartiles of income in America, they're seeing real wage gains, you know, greater than inflation. They're really stomping the rest of the higher incomes in growth, um, and, and and that is people are being deceived at the gas
0: pump because by by draining the strategic reserves, we, we brought down oil prices, and from a personal consumption expenditure standpoint, even before we brought prices down. What you spend on gasoline is incredibly small part of what you spend money on. But psychologically, it's important because you go to that pump every couple of weeks and and you look and you go, oh, price of gas is down. Maybe inflation's not a problem until you go to the restaurant and there's automatically a 15% tips slapped on your bill without your choosing.
1: Well, yeah, and to the psychological part, this is something we've talked about and I, I think about because I don't think most people are, but in an inflationary time, you start to play games of, back to our conversation of price and time, you start to ask questions about time. So for example, like, you know we own home builders. How long would it take me to build my own home today, okay? And if the low-skilled wage or the blue-collar wage, let's just say, is growing at 7% income clips every year, how much would a house cost me to build over the next year to two years versus the existing structure? In other words, you use replacement cost analysis in an inflationary time, because you'll lose the time, and that means you'll lose the money as well. And and I think we're beginning to see that because back to travel, uh, we were just talking about, we're, you know, we have a corporate retreat that we're doing, and Bill was complaining about the price of the flights. We already see in travel that people will book things six, seven, eight months out, because A, the scarcity, but B, the price. In other words, they have changed their modality and their decision-making to say, I need to get ahead of this because the inflationary pressures are beginning to grow bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, I mean, people used to plan their vacations 90 days out would be pretty common. Now people are 6, 12, 18 months out in certain cases to get ahead of price. That kind of psychological change... It's a huge change. Huge change. There's something else I want want you to mention because it's just a great story, I think. Explain... uh, what grandpa would do you know, in terms of goods he would buy because of inflation and the write-offs you got back in the 70s with things yeah. like boats. Because yeah. this, this is where you're at the peak of inflation. It's all people think about. Yeah, we, we've been talking a lot lately about my four,
0: uh, 43 years in the investment business, how we started out with 90-day uh, T-bills at 18% and went to zero, and how we started at six times earnings in the stock market, and now we're at 21. I mean, we've literally just gone as big a change in 40 years as you've ever seen. So in 1978, my dad went to buy another fishing boat. He was a Columbia River ship pilot, and his favorite form of recreation was catching fish. So he had to have a boat that he could fish out of the uh, of the uh, Columbia River bar out into the ocean, but then also use it in, in the river out in front of his home way up the river. And and so he liked this bayliner. I think it was like a twenty-four foot bayliner, mm-hmm. and and he was going to buy it. He had the cash to buy it, but they were offering him an eight percent four-year loan. Well, my dad was he'd taken economics in high school uh, way back when in the in the in the uh, late thirties and early nineteen forties, and he knew that if he could borrow money at eight percent back then, you could tax deduct consumer interest, not just... Well,
1: and trailing inflation was running Trailing
0: out. inflation was already at 8 or 9% on its way to 11%. And he did the calculation in his head. Well, wait a second. I, I'm in, let's say he's in a 30% tax bracket. I pay 8% interest. That cost me 56 The inflation rate's running 8 or 9%. And I'm going to pay it back over four years. And the inflation rate's going to accelerate. He, he knew that he was going to pay it back in cheaper dollars. And, and by the way, I, I think somebody at the federal government is going to figure out the have taken on all this new debt and the best way for them to pay that back is to pay it back in cheaper dollars and the only way you do that is inflate your way out of the problem
1: we we'll agree and, and and you know we will get to that in housing where the person sits down and says yeah even if i pay six and a half percent if inflation runs at five i'm only paying one and a half percent real and like i tell people um in, in inflation's kind of like jesus once you accept it into your heart it's never going away <laughs> <laughs> it's never going away it's never going away so um so a couple things one um you know for our listeners if, if any big questions like that this is very fun for us to kind of flesh out what we're thinking as you can kind of see we're, we're thinking about this from multiple angles multiple lenses uh, i want to make sure to mention that we'd love to have another kind of big picture question like that for our next book list um Bill, thank you for joining me uh, to share with the podcast listeners what is on the Smead book list and what we're reading. Um, Thank you. For our listeners, if you have a great book that you'd like to recommend, email podcast at SmeadCap.com. That's podcast at SmeadCap.com. You can also reach out to us on Twitter. Um, Our handle out there is at SmeadCap. Send us your book recommendations. Send us your questions. Uh, We'll give it a shout out like we have. Uh, you know, looking forward. Oh, one thing I forgot. I, I missed this. This is my fault, by the way. Uh, Superfan Steve did have a book recommendation this quarter. And so since Superfan Steve's been feeding good books, I, I want to give him a shout out. Uh, the book Superfan Steve recommended is uh, A Question of Power by Robert Price is the book he recommended. And so uh, because of uh, uh, Superfan Steve, I wanted to make sure to, to hit Bryce that.
0: Bryce or Bryce? Uh, Bryce, Robert, Robert Bryce. Bryce. B-R- um, B-R-Y-C-E. Yeah.
1: And so for our listeners, like like Superfan Steve, if you have a, a book you want to recommend, we'll give it a shout out. You know, like I said earlier, we're book junkies. Um, thank you for joining us for Book with Legs podcast um, and joining us for the Smead book list. We look forward to the next episode.
0: Thank you for listening to A Book with Legs, a podcast brought to you by Smead Capital Management. The material provided in this podcast is for informational use only and should not be construed as investment advice. You can learn more about Smead Capital Management and its products at SmeadCap.com or by calling your financial advisor.